After that, Backchat producer Eamon Snow runs us through the concerns surrounding the federal government's proposed online safety bill. We'll then be discussing the impact this bill would have on sex worker, the sex worker community and all internet users. Finally, Backchat producer Tanita Razagi reviews a new memoir, a battle cry for working women everywhere suffering from abuse and burnout. And as always, we want to hear from you. How are you celebrating Pride this weekend? Join in the conversation and let us know your thoughts on 0409 945 945 or tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Now, imagine being so done with everything that you fantasise about how injured you need to be in order to get hospi- hospitalised and finally get some time off. This was Dr Yumiko Kadoda's world. Technically, she was living her dream of being a high-flying, reconstructive surgeon. But the pressure to stay silent in the face of racism and sexual harassment, not to mention the gruelling hours, eventually took its toll. She knew pressure was part of the job, but that didn't make it okay. Backchat producer Tanita Razagi reviewed the new memoir, Emotional Woman, speaking to Dr. Yumiko Kadota herself. I've been described as emotional, I've been described as overreacting, Uh, I've been told that it's not what I've been made to feel, that how I see something is, you know, like I'm paranoid. It made me feel really silenced and I was upset about it. It's not, it's happened a lot in my life. So many times I've been told I was too emotional or a super emotional or sensitive female. In that moment, it makes me feel super weak, uh, inferior, and really small, actually. Emotional, overreacting, sensitive. These are just few of the gendered words women are given. Slight backhanded comments made casually in conversation. You're branded as an emotional female. So imagine this now. You're a doctor in a public hospital. You're on call for 180 continuous hours and working 70 hours a week. Burnout culture, sexism, racism, bullying and harassment. These are just some of the things you experience. That was Yumiko Kuroda's reality during her time as a doctor in the public healthcare system. Through this, she repeatedly raised concerns about her conditions, which included being rostered on 24 days in a row and over 100 hours of overtime in a month. But her pleas for support and fears that her exhaustion would compromise her patients were dismissed or ignored. In 2018, Kudoda resigned and was hospitalised for sleep deprivation for six weeks. In her book, Emotional Female, 
Yumiko exposes a world enshrouded by a professional code of silence, where the pressures and the stresses of heavy workloads drove people to suicide, where people were afraid to report inappropriate behaviour, where you're described as an emotional female when you speak up. My name is Yumiko Kadota. I'm 33 years old. I am a doctor. I've been a doctor for about 10 years now. I was born in Japan. I, in 2018, I was working as a plastic surgery registrar at a public hospital. And I was working crazy hours at the time. Uh, I was working on a unit with two registrars, but unfortunately the workload wasn't distributed fairly. I was doing 10 24-hour on-call shifts a fortnight while my male counterpart was just working four. So I was, I had a huge burden and some of those days were extremely long, up to 20 hours a day and getting phone calls throughout the night. So there came a point where I physically couldn't keep going. And despite talking to my seniors and all the right channels at the hospital, nothing was changing. And eventually I was pushed too far and decided to, to quit my job. And that was June, 2018. Initially, I did not hear from anyone at all. Um, no one at the hospital was interested in, in making the working conditions better for me and I didn't hear from anyone from the hospital. In fact, it, it was only after I'd published the blog post that someone from the hospital got in touch. Um, they sent me an email, which was, which was slightly racist actually, it's, um, saying that they thought I'd gone home to Japan, even though my home's Australia. There were times for me that the racism was quite blatant. For example, I had a, a patient tell me that she'd prefer to have an Aussie doctor, thanks, is what she said. Um, so sometimes it really did slap me in the face, and other times it was subtle. There are a lot of unconscious biases that affect people, and one of the things I discuss in Emotional Female is the concept of the bamboo ceiling. And what I saw as I progressed was that there were less and less people of my colour um, in the senior positions. I mean, when I went to medical school, the majority of my cohort were actually Asian. And as I went, uh, as I progressed, there were less and less. There's definitely a reluctance for people to speak up in the profession, and that's because there's so much at stake. So a lot of people don't feel like they can speak up when things are wrong, because they don't want to be perceived as troublemakers. What's happening at the moment is unacceptable and there needs to be an urgent change um, to, to improve the condition for junior doctors. We do have a very serious um, problem at the moment with bullying, harassment, um, sexual harassment, sexism, misogyny. It's a, a tough environment sometimes for junior doctors. And I, I'm also aware of poor mental health of junior doctors and we have had a number of tragedies over the years with young doctors taking their lives because of what's happening to them at work. What I want to say is that I don't want to discourage anyone from pursuing medicine. What I do want to do is to, to raise awareness about some of the issues within the profession so that it's not such a shock when people enter the system and also with the hope that the, there'll be cultural changes so that anyone who's new entering the profession will not have the same experience that I had. Being called emotional is something that tends to happen exclusively to women and it's often used as a slur and I want to stop that. So if anyone ever gets called emotional, the first thing to do is to call it out. Ask the person to repeat themselves. Sorry, what did you just call me? And also question why they use that term. It's such a gendered term. If it's something they wouldn't 
describe a male, they shouldn't be calling a woman emotional. And I just want to say that we should be reclaiming that word because it's actually a good thing to be emotional. Being emotionally intelligent makes you someone who can connect with people. It makes you more empathetic and caring and it makes you a human. So if you're an emotional person, it's something that you should be proud of. That was Backchat producer Tanita Razagi speaking to and reviewing Dr. Yumiko Kadota's new memoir, Emotional Women. This it- week, a planned community-led Mardi Gras march by Pride in Protest was condoned by New South Wales Police, stating it breached public health and safety orders. But yesterday in court, an exemption for the march to go forward today was passed. Joining us to talk about why this community-led march is so important is local queer activist Lungol Wakina. Lungol, thanks for joining us. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, So were you surprised that the police tried to prevent the community-led march uh, that's happening today? No, not at all. We were definitely expecting police pushback. This is kind of their MO for protests in general, but specifically like radical left-wing politics, they tend to not be the biggest fan of. So we were 100% expecting them to be difficult about it. And there's a lot of history with police violence against queer people. With this in mind, do you take issue with police being a part of these celebrations? Yeah, of course. I mean, the first Mardi Gras 1978, they were chanting, stop police attacks on gays, women, and blacks. You know, this was a protest against police brutality. You know, it's having police involved in any capacity outside of being deeply apologetic and paying reparations to the community is just inappropriate. So over the years, corporations have started to heavily market their support of queer pride. Um, How has this influenced Mardi Gras today? Well, as you can kind of see in the past couple of years, the corporate Mardi Gras has kind of earned that um, name for a reason. They have prioritized giving floats to banks and airlines and even the Liberal Party over members of the community. They've made it very clear that their priorities lie in profit and not in the community that they're claiming to represent. And why do you think it's so important to have community-led marches without big corporations? Well, what happens when Mardi Gras ends and the pride colours are gone from all their advertising, you know, despite the fact that corporations are inherently exploitative and harmful to the queer community in general, they're very clearly just using Mardi Gras as an opportunity to make more money off a community that's already marginalized. So finally, Lungol, uh, for those attending the march today on Oxford Street at 2pm, what do they need to know? It's very important that you find all the information we've posted online on our Instagram. That's pride.in.protest. We've got a lot of information about how to keep yourself and your friends safe. Make sure you're wearing a mask. Make sure you're well hydrated. We have a whole bunch of tips, especially if this is your first rally. And there will be over 30 COVID marshals there on the, um, on the square. So if you have any questions, feel free to come up to any of us and let us know. 
Lungol, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. That was queer activist Lungol Wakina talking about community-led Mardi Gras March. You can show support by attending the rally at Taylor Square today at 2pm. Don't go anywhere because up next we'll be exploring the federal government's new online safety bill before Gala Vanting from sex working organisation Scarlet Alliance joins us to unpack some concerns with the legislation. That's coming up in less than a bit. Uh, Less than a bit is a technical term, isn't it? Yes. It is, in less than a bit. But first, a song. This is uh, Your Does It All. It's called Armadillo. Keep it locked on FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Back chat, your alternative to talk back. Do you think we need more or less regulation of our online spaces? It's an interesting question and debate over this very issue is raging right now in response to the federal government's proposed online safety bill. Backchat reporter Eamon Snow has put together this quick explainer of the bill and why it's got some people concerned. Back in December, the federal government introduced a new bill to Parliament aimed at improving online safety. The Online Safety Bill 2021 is currently before a Senate committee and includes some big changes to the regulation of Australian online spaces. These include measures to protect both children and adults from abuse online, a scheme to remove revenge porn and the sharing of intimate images, and new blocks for sexual and violent content. There will also be harsher penalties for online services that host or fail to remove content that falls foul of the legislation legislation and increased power for the e-safety office to take down this material. While this all might sound great on the surface, digital rights organisations, the sex worker community and other groups have raised significant concerns with elements of this legislation, citing fears of deplatforming, censorship and the unfair removal of online content. A key concern highlighted by critics of this bill are new requirements for tech companies and online service providers to minimise bullying, abuse material, revenge porn and sexual content. What's got people worried here is that the terms are drafted very broadly, meaning content or services that are legal and not actually harmful could end up in the firing line. Platforms are likely to use flawed algorithms and AI to determine what content needs to be canned or resort to the blanket removal of accounts and material that could land them in trouble. We've seen this happen in the US after legislation aimed at preventing sex trafficking ended up meaning a bunch of sex workers had their online accounts, advertising and livelihoods disappear overnight, forcing them to start again or resort to more dangerous ways of working. Another concern flagged is the broad discretionary powers that this bill grants to our e-safety commissioner, Julie Inman Grant. In the bill, the commissioner would have expanded powers to personally decide whether sexual content of any sort should be removed from Australian online feeds. This opens the door to sex workers, porn creators and consumers, and sex educators and activists all having the online spaces they use and work within removed or heavily restricted. In the proposed legislation, the Commissioner would have similar powers over violent content, and while no one is suggesting we let traumatising material float around freely online, there are cases where recordings of violence are critically important for the public to see. Think George Floyd. The worry here is that the Commissioner, an unelected and unaccountable official, gets to decide what may or may not be acceptable online. These are just some of the concerns many have raised about this bill, and with more individuals and groups starting to ask for a rethink, it's going to become harder for the government to push ahead. 
Joining us now to talk more about the proposed online safety bill is Gala Vanting. She's National Programs Manager with Australia's peak sex worker organisation, Scarlet Alliance. Hi, Gala. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, So what kinds of amendments are sex workers and other critics of the bill calling for? Uh, So primarily we're looking for um, some changes to the bill that constrain um, all sexual content as harmful content. Um, We're also looking for transparency and accountability measures um, built into the bill for the eSafety Commissioner um, to prevent misuse of of power and also to prevent scope creep. Um, we are looking for um, changes to the the way that the bill frames consent. Um, sorry, uh, particularly as it refers to um, the non-consensual sharing of intimate images. Um, and you know, we're also sort of looking uh, more broadly at the um, the way that the bill could potentially threaten end-to-end encryption services, um, where there's an investigation called for by the commission. And what kind of appeals process exists for those who feel that they've had things wrongfully blocked or removed online? Right now, the bill does not nominate an appeals process within the eSafety Commission and instead refers um, users out to the Australian Appeals Tribunal, um, which is a pretty hefty um, and burdensome process, takes a long time, um, and it isn't necessarily accessible to everyone because it requires a bit of, um, you know, time and sometimes financial capital. So the eSafety Commissioner has assured that she's not interested in targeting sex workers and their content, uh, but what do you make of those comments? Uh, the, look, I think that the, um, the bill needs to grant the powers that are desired and to limit, um, limit it to that. And currently that's not what we're looking at. Whether this commissioner intends um, is kind of irrelevant um, because this, this may, she may not be the person who's in the role moving forward. Um, and the incredible amount of discretionary power afforded to her under the bill um, it is, you know, leaves a lot of room uh, for her to do what she wants. Um, and I think there's also a failure to, um, to acknowledge the unintended consequences of overcapture the unintended consequences of um, incentivizing platforms to de-platform sex workers. Um, so the intention is, you know, it's, it's a funny thing to, to rely on in an argument, um, you know, given that we're talking about the law here, given that we're talking about um, making good decisions about policy design, um, the intention uh, and the effect are two very different things. This bill appears to have been rushed from the public consultation stage to the Senate, with hundreds of community submissions not being published. What's your take on that process? My take on that process is um, that that consultation feels a little bit disingenuous, um, and also that the the rush really um, sort of silences dissent because it, it you know if you don't necessarily know that, um, that 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 things are moving forward as quickly as they are, you don't have a chance to intervene. Um, luckily, we, we have we have been able to submit to every stage of the consultation process. Um, however, we have not seen any substantial change to the legislation between its first reading in Parliament, sorry, its draft exposure, um, and the um, and the reading in Parliament. So, you know, it was very clear that out of 376 submissions received, um, you know, there had been very little change to the to the legislation. Gala, thank you so much for your insight and for joining us today. Thanks so much.
That was National Programs Manager with Scarlet Alliance gallivanting, outlining the concerns sex workers and others have surrounding the proposed online safety bill. And that's all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our producers, Eamon Snow, Millie Roberts, Tanita Rizagi and Vanessa Lim. Stick around for Limbs Akimbo and we'll catch you next Saturday at 9.30am. For our last song, we're playing a local Sydney track called Conversations by Imbi the Girl. Bye. Okay, this might sound crazy, a little bit strange.